worship together by singing this morning how firm a foundation you'll find that on uh, number uh, 463 in your hymnals if you'd like to turn there and stand as you're able as we sing how firm a foundation chapter verses 15 through 17 and 21 through 22. As the people, people were, do you remember Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? All right, so let's just, let's go back in time and pretend that never happened. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptized you with water, but one who is more powerful than I 
is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. That's good stuff. <laughs> I didn't think we would have Bill and Ted's excellent adventure in church this morning, but I'm, I'm excited about that. I wrote this song a long time ago, um, actually, because... Uh, Long before I worked here, when I was in seminary, um, Mark was my mentor for a class. And, uh, and as I was talking about worship and stuff, uh, he copied like a chapter out of Paul Tillich theology. And uh, as I was, my head was swimming in the midst of this theology, trying to figure it out, um, I was uh, awakened to this beautiful language that felt... Uh, felt so, so true, even though I barely understood it. Um, and, uh, and so, is that not life? Um, there's a truth that there, that's there that we can sense, but we find it hard to understand um, how the, uh, the, the call of God on our lives is, is not so much about turning us into perfect beings, but awakening that beauty that God has placed within. Somewhere deep inside The truth of love exists Transcendental union between the boundless and the fist, covered up in layers of ambiguity, misspelled in translation, making sense of. Somewhere deep inside 
time melts with divine past all sense and reason that's where the truth we find the crux of my heart you of my heart the point of my rambling the center of my heart you are somewhere deep inside pretense and fear of being known and not being known is the crux of life the crux of life the crux of life the crux of my heart of my heart, the point of my rambling, the center of my heart, you Transcendental union between the boundless and the fixed. Thank you, Aaron. Hear these words from Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. I'll read reading the first verse and then a bit from 5 through 7. Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Then verse 5, again, with the message, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The 
following is a quote from a celebrated and world-famous Christian who spent the bulk of his adult life in our own commonwealth in the state of Kentucky. He wrote these words. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And I had not laid up any treasures for myself in heaven. They were all on earth. I wanted to be a writer, poet, critic, professor. I wanted to enjoy all kinds of pleasures of the intellect and the senses. And in order to have these pleasures, I did not hesitate to place myself in situations which I knew would end in spiritual disaster. Although generally I was so blinded by my own appetites that I never even clearly considered this fact until it was too late and the damage was done. Do you know who wrote that? If you do, hold on to it just for a minute. Or if you don't, be thinking about who that might be. <clears throat> Donna and I have a hard time sometimes finding something that we both want to watch on television together in the evening. Something between HDTV and Action Adventures. I know it's surprising. I can't believe Donna likes all that violence and fighting. But we have often found it's best to find something that usually is a period piece. And we completed just recently on Amazon Prime a remake of the well-known Vanity Fair, a mid-19th century classic written by William Makepeace Thackeray. Is that the best middle name you've ever heard? William Makepeace Thackeray, second only to Charles Dickens, the 19th century English novelist, and uh, this short novelette of sorts of the, uh, the hope of a, a girl raised in poverty to climb up the hierarchy in British society in the Victorian era has been redone again in a pretty decent piece on Netflix. Has anyone seen it? I mean, on uh, Amazon Prime. All right. If you don't believe me, ask Dara uh, if what she thinks about it. Uh, but at the beginning of every episode, there's this carousel with the characters on it. And Michael Palin, famous from Monty Python fame, is the narrator. And he says these important words. Welcome to Vanity Fair, where everyone is striving after what is not worth having. Words perhaps as true here today as maybe 200 years ago. Everyone striving for that which is not worth having. Keep thinking about that word that Dara read about people living in expectation and wonder. What is God up to? What is God doing? What is God going to do? Is John the Baptist the Messiah? Is God going to deliver us and bring to us a redeemer? And what is our purpose? This thing that we do week after week after week after week. What are we striving after? Is it something worth having? Place of guidance, comfort, wisdom? place to be challenged and maybe pushed a little bit to our better selves, a place to belong and experience kindness and compassion, a treasure stored up in heaven. 
And so notice these reassuring words in Isaiah from the mid-6th century after Israel had been destroyed and taken into captivity and are trying to put their lives back together and their nation back together and hearing these incredible words from God, don't be afraid. I created you. I formed you. And I redeem you. That word created you in Isaiah 43 is the same word from Genesis 1.1. God creating the heavens and the earth. This word formed in Isaiah 43 is the same word we learn of in Genesis 2 chapter 4 or verse 4. Where God takes the human form and shapes within it life from the dust of the earth. And to redeem, usually it means to be freed from a debt, to be freed from slavery, or as we have incorporated that, to hear the invitation of Jesus to be released, to be remade, to be reconciled. That Jesus, when he was baptized, invited his own self into the waters of our experience. All these things that surround us, the damning floods that we find ourselves in the middle of. And Jesus comes and brings his own presence to live in the midst of our fires and floods and troubled waters and invites us by taking on his presence and his peace, we can be refreshed and remade and reformed. Listen to another guide, Annie Dillard, when she writes this about worship. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us on our pews for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. That this God who has created us and is forming us is redeeming us. Dangerous and yes, necessary business. If the three most affectionate words we can ever hear and say, are those beautiful words, I love you, then perhaps equally the three most powerful words that can shape our lives are, I need help. That we gather together to be remade, reformed, redeemed, washed clean. That we are not meant to live out our lives like spiritual lone wolves, just us and God out in the wilderness, up against the world, 
that the whole enterprise is calling us into this lovely community where we can love, where we can serve, where we can admit our need for something better than ourselves, where we can seek to find direction and guidance, where we can find strength for our journey and people who will walk alongside of us along the way. As I was reading that passage from Isaiah 43 some weeks ago now, I was dealing with these compass points that Isaiah spoke to about the east and the west and the north and the south, that we live here in the middle. And there's all these places around us of where we might go, where we might travel. And what can we gain from looking to the east or the west or the north or the south? And in that imagination, I began to wonder about what is my east and west, north and south. Some years ago, when land was not an issue, churches were always built facing east. And gray plots made sure that your feet were pointed to the east because when Jesus came, I think east is somewhere that, is it that way or let me think about this. No, it's that way, right? Yeah, it's more, more that way. All right, so when you're um, here and gathered in church, I'm facing the right way. Because the, um, the belief was that when Jesus came back, he would come back from Jerusalem. And so when you rose up from the grave, you wanted to be facing Jesus. I mean, that, I think, you know, you can get a little mechanical about that. I guess if you were being raised up, you could turn around if you had to. You know, oh, it's over there. Okay, I got it now. <laughs> But the east is the direction where we might think of ancient wisdom or a tradition that instructs us, a place to look toward to figure out some information that would be helpful from a deep stream of instruction, words that have helped people that have lived in past generations, all the way back maybe to the beginning of recorded history, these words that liven the spirit and direct the life and give us some level of understanding. And perhaps because as maybe Dillard's work is telling us, this can be all powerful. It's like TNT in the hands of a poor manager. It could be deadly and disastrous. But in the right hands, it can also blow up prejudice and hatred and hopelessness that can so often plague us. Where do we go to find helpful direction to our lives? Perhaps the East is a place for us to consider. And then there's the West, the direction that I'm moving in. How many people have watched all those great Westerns? Go West. Young person, go west. And as we think about the traverse of the sun across the sky, we recognize that we are moving in a certain direction, that our lives are moving into the future, into the, the horizon that is yet ahead of us, that there is some level of intentionality about where I might be headed. 
according to the survivalists, be careful of the path you choose because it will become the rut you constantly travel. Be careful of the path you choose. It will become the rut that you constantly travel. We can get stuck. And so it's helpful for us ever so often to get a compass reading, to reorient ourselves, to seek to find these set of in introspective directions. Maybe it's something we can ask ourselves every new year or every quarter or every month or if you're a good churchgoer every week. Where am I going? Where is my life headed? What direction is best? What, what should be best? Where is God leading me? Where does God want me to go? What is the westerly direction of our life? And then north, what is true? You know, the stars are pretty consistent compared to our lives. Out there shining for millions of years, still shining, even when we cannot see them or notice them. Always not clear because they rotate in our orientation based upon what constellation we may be seeing, except the ones that are so far high or low based on how we understand our gravity that stay fixed and give us certainty. To me, the directional of north compels me to wonder about, am I open to truth wherever I may find truth? Will I allow truth to be a source for my life? Sometimes truth that is hard to hear or truth that is difficult to digest, truth that unsettles some of my pre-assumed assumptions about the world and the way the world should be or the way I should be or who I am. But like those quiet revelations in the heavens, they're not there to threaten. They're not there to accuse. They are certainly not something we need to be afraid of, of all the things we are afraid of in life. They are simply fixed points of incredible mass that are part of a wondrous creation that are in the millions and billions and trillions of representations. That this God that I hope to have as a part of my world and a part of my life is far beyond all I can think or imagine. And the truth that God has for me is so immense compared to the small levels of my appreciation of it and how wide, how large, how open am I to what God has in store? Finally, the South. Who are around me? Who share this planet with me? Who are those particularly that I may prejudge to be beneath me? All a part of God's collective large family. Are these people who share this time and place guides on my journey? Humans can be pretty frustrating. I don't know if you've experienced this yet or not in your life. They can be pretty challenging. They can be pretty stupid. They can be pretty frustrating. 
And I'm just not talking about myself. I'm talking about this world of need that we are in the middle of. And it's a true spiritual challenge, isn't it? To be called to love unconditionally. It doesn't mean we're doormats. It doesn't mean we're pursed around. It doesn't mean we just let people do whatever they want. But it means my root motivation in relating to any single person is birthed and formed and redeemed in unconditional love. A desire to truly care for that person even though they are beyond, at times, according to my judgment, beyond help. Hey, have you figured out our friend yet? The celebrated Kentuckian? Let me offer a few quotes. I see you over there, Becky. Becky has it. He also said, love is our true destiny. We do not find the meaning of life by ourselves alone. We find it with one another. Or happiness is not a matter of intensity, but of balance, order, rhythm, and harmony. If you haven't figured it out, maybe this one will lock it in. Love seeks only one thing, the good of the one loved. It leaves all the other secondary effects to take care of themselves. Love, therefore, is its own reward. Well, if you're still not there, there's a Kentucky historic marker located on Jefferson and Muhammad Ali in Louisville. I lived in Louisville for 10 years. I think there's a lot of good things in Louisville, but this may be one of the best. For that spot commemorates a deeply spiritual, though if you observed it at the time, completely ordinary experience. For on that corner, on March 18th, 19, 1958, this author, poet, social critic, spiritual author was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that he loved all these people that he found on that small street side in Louisville. In fact, he saw them walking around shining like the sun. This experience written of in conjectures of a guilty bystander was by Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who had this incredible moment after two whole decades of complete devotion to God, where his life was changed forever on a normal, busy streetscape. God has created you. God has formed you. God is reforming you. God is redeeming you. The question remains for us, how receptive might we be to God's loving intervention? Let me invite this loving intervention as we sing together, Spirit, open my heart. Number 692. 
Continue to open our hearts to God and have a space of quiet reflection. At that time, you can come and light a candle if you'd like over here. If you'd like to sit and reflect on the icon and the quote that you'll find on the back of your orders of worship, you can do that. Or if you just want to sit and focus on your breath, do that as well as we respond to God this morning. As we enter into this time, let's read together our call to prayer that you'll find printed in your orders of worship. God, it is incomprehensible that you would accept us as we are. That you would unravel piece by piece the sins and scars that hide our true selves. God, it is incomprehensible that you have placed in each of us your spark, welcomed us into your family, and called us 
is truly incomprehensible, the mystery that you have hidden deep within our souls. The spark of the divine that calls us, that unites us with you. It is incomprehensible that you would come to live in us with your spirit. us to relationship, that you would love us as we are, and that you would gently and lovingly unravel the sin and the shame that binds us. So this morning we offer these things to you. us and transform us into your image, that you would uncover the beauty that is within, and that you would awaken your image that lives within us. It's not just for us, God, but for those who are beyond these walls. That you would give us eyes to see that they are too shining like the sun. And that we have so much to learn from one another. And there truly is no other. steadily in this truth. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning, for worshiping. It is always a joy to get to be here with you uh, in these early mornings. So let's stand together as we, uh, as, we, as we leave this morning and sing one last song, step by step, number 743.